I want to ask you a question to get started today. And the question is, how often do you think about your legacy? How often do you think about the legacy that you're going to live with your life? In fact, when is the last time that someone asked you that question? What do you, what, where do you want your life to count? What kind of legacy do you want to leave? See, legacy tends to be something that most of us would couch in a conversation that I like to call another time and another day. I put legacy in the, in the uh, kind of category of what I call rainy day conversations, the things if you don't have anything else to think about, nothing else to talk about, then maybe I would get to legacy. It probably doesn't tend to be on the forefront of your mind. You probably don't wake up in the morning, you know, with a 17 bullet points and number 15 on there is, you know, think about my legacy today. In fact, when I, when I think about my own life and maybe when you think about your own life, some of us would, would venture to say, you know what, that's not something that I even need to be thinking about right now because I'm young, I have forever, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to be, you know, maybe the, the next, you know, talk to me in 40 years from now and then I will think about legacy or talk to me 20 years from now and then I maybe will have an answer for you because it's not within the realm of my understanding today. Or maybe it's just the season that we're in. We're in this COVID-19 season where everything is as of this minute. You know, everything is, that's the plan as of today. That's the plan as of this hour. And so, Pastor Jason, how dare you even ask me to think about something past the next 17 seconds of my life? Because I can't get my mind wrapped around anything, especially what is my legacy going to be and what impact is my life going to have? But the reality is, legacy is a really tricky topic. Legacy is something that regardless of how much you think about it, regardless of how intentional you are to wake up in the morning and say, what kind of legacy am I going to leave with my life? Your legacy is being written and it is being forged moment by moment, regardless of how much you pay attention to it. Ooh, that is something I need to be processing then. Every decision Every action, every indecision, every inaction, your mere presence in this place this morning, whether in person or whether connecting with Rolling Hills online or whether listening to this sermon at some point in the future, all of those things are these little moment-by-moment kind of experiences and choices and decisions that are impacting your legacy, Everything that you do, every dollar that you spend, every ounce of energy, every resource, the way that you spend your time, of course, the way that you are seeking, hopefully, to grow in a relationship with Jesus Christ, all of those things speak to your legacy, whether you realize it or not. And so based on that simple truth, this should be something that we should be processing through and that we should be thinking through, regardless if you're a teenager or if you are older than a teenager. Notice I did not put an upper cap on that. So if you're a teenager or above, this is something that we should be thinking about. And I'm so excited about our, our, our kind of culmination of our series today because we're at the end of this series, Life on Purpose. And what we're going to be looking at today is how do I live a life on purpose, not just for my benefit, but rather also additionally for the benefit of others and how to point others to that life-giving relationship with Jesus. How am I going to use my time? How am I going to use my life? How am I going to use my resources? And the the passage of scripture that we're going to look at to kind of culminate this life on purpose series is Acts chapter 17. So if you have a Bible, 
I would encourage you to go ahead and open to Acts chapter 17. If you have the Rolling Hills app, you're going to see that on there as well. You're also going to see some of these words up here on the screen. But before we dig into Acts chapter 17, I'm going to pray and just ask God to show us specifically what it is that he wants to show us today about the legacy that he wants us to leave with our lives. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to be in your presence. I'm thankful for a legacy of faith that was imparted to me, and I pray that um, I would be sensitive to share that with others. I pray for each and every person in the room that regardless of the legacy that was passed um, on to them, that today we would make a conscious choice and a conscious decision to live um, not just for ourselves, but for you and for the benefit of others. I'm so grateful for your word. I thank you for this series, Life on Purpose. And I pray that as a result of just this encounter with you today, that you would show us um, specifically why it is that we're here, that you would mold us, and that you would ultimately make us more and more like you today. And it's in the name of Christ that we pray and ask all these things. Amen and amen. Acts chapter 17, again, is our text today. And I'm going to start by reading verses 1 through 5. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. And as was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. They formed a mob and started a riot in the city. And they rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. So you see there in verses 2 and 3, I want to unpack something for you because you've seen this before if you've been a part of our series. In verse 2, as was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. See, what are, what's Paul doing here? Paul and his companions are working. You may remember last week or two weeks ago, Paul was always adding people to his team. He wasn't just a, a solo worker. He, was, he, he knew, and it's something that we should know as well, that life on purpose meant that we're never meant to go alone. We will always go further faster when we go with other people. And so Paul is building a team of people. He's building companions. And what do they do? They arrive in this city Thessalonica. And you may know by now, where does Paul always go frequent? See, when I go to a new place, I'm always looking for the best coffee shop in that town. I mean, that's just what I'm doing. I'm also a pizza eater. So if I go to a new town, I go to TripAdvisor, and I'm looking for best coffee, best dessert, and best pizza in that town. Paul's a little more spiritual. He goes to a town, and he's just like, I want to find the synagogue why does Paul find the synagogue? Because that's his heritage. He was raised a Jewish leader. He, in fact, was a Pharisee of Pharisees. So it was so normal for him to go to the place that, A, was comfortable, but also a place where he could intersect some of the, the issues that the, the Jewish leaders were facing and some of the people of prominence. He helps them see who Jesus is and who the Messiah is, and he's explaining that to them from Scripture. He's, in fact, saying Jesus came to accomplish so much, immeasurably more than you could ever ask or imagine. He is the Messiah. He is the one that came to save you. And he proclaims the message of the gospel in these synagogues. And it says that many people came to faith in Jesus Christ, but it also says that many did not. Some heard the message of the gospel and they trusted in Jesus and some heard the message of the gospel, and they made a conscious choice in that moment to not trust in Jesus. See, all of Paul's ministry, and not just Paul's ministry, but the early apostles and the early disciples in the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, 
and John, all of their commission and all of their mission was really the same as our mission today, but Paul really embodied this. He would go into a city, and he would say, and again, these are my words, not necessarily what we see recorded in Scripture, but he would ultimately live in a way to where he would say, my desire is to know him and make him known. My desire is to know Jesus. Jesus has radically transformed me, and as a result of that, I want to make him known to everyone else. And he would start in a place like the Jewish synagogue. Now, this phrase, know him and make him known, may sound familiar to you. It may sound familiar to you because you've seen it as a mission statement on organizations, or it's a pretty popular phrase for ministries or churches, but it even goes farther back than that. Because knowing him and making him known is really at the heart of Jesus' ministry. This was, in essence, starting from a place of Jesus' idea because, see, Jesus made it abundantly clear to us how we were to live, the legacy with which we were to aspire. There were religious leaders of the day that would ask Jesus questions. Do you guys remember some of those? Some of the message in the gospel were the religious leaders, guys like Paul, <laughs> would come and they would try to catch Jesus up in a teaching. Matthew 22, 36 through 40 is one of them. When they came and they said, there's so many laws, Jesus, which is the most important law that we should follow? And look at what Jesus says in Matthew 22. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. See, what is Jesus saying? Jesus says, everything hangs on this, knowing me and making me known. Everything hangs on this, loving me and loving everyone always. Everything hangs on this, you know, looking to me first for guidance, and then seeking to share me with all those that you come in contact with, which leads to this big idea of legacy. In fact, it's the one idea that I want to leave you with today, because it's the totality of this message, but it's not just this message, it's really the totality of this entire series, and you see it up here on the screen, the greatest legacy will be left when I point others to truth. The greatest legacy in my life will be left when I point others to truth. When I point others to the truth. The band sang a song earlier that perfectly illustrates this. Illustrates this truth from John 8, 32. And these are Jesus' words. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you, what? Free. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. See, the greatest legacy that I can ever leave in my life will be those moments when I point people to truth. Now, in the essence of time, I could, not, I could not even begin to stand up here and share with you every person that has positively impacted my life. I'm going to tell you about a couple here in just a second, but I'm sure that you would be the same in the same boat. There's no way that I could share every person who has, who has kind of breathed life into the legacy that I'm trying to live and trying to fulfill. Now, but what I can tell you about 100% of the positive influences in my life, 100% of those positive influences have been rooted in people who took it upon themselves to point me to truth in God's Word. 100% of them. Every story that I could tell you has this underlying truth or this underlying concept of someone who loved me enough to point me to the truth. 
who loved me enough to point me to some truth that's centered here in God's word is exactly what Paul was doing. He was going into a town, and he would go into a synagogue, and he would say, the Son has set you free. The Messiah has set you free. You're missing it. You're looking for something else. I want you to know that your forever can be changed. That's what Paul was seeking to do, to know Jesus and to make him known. I'm so thankful that I've had people in my life that have pointed me to the truth that lived with this principle of that the greatest legacy that I could ever leave would be to point others to truth. I think about um, one of my mentors named John Barron, and I've shared with some of you stories about John Barron before, but he was one of my college pastors. But more so than that, John was really the first person that ever really kind of took a shot on me in leadership and kind of gave me an opportunity to lead. In fact, he gave me way too much responsibility for someone of my experience. I'm sure he may be either really thankful for that now or still might be bemoaning the fact that uh, he let me make so many mistakes. But I'm so grateful for John, and I could talk uh, ad nauseum about the things that he taught me. But one of the things that John taught me, and it's, it was so crucial for me to hear at that moment in my life, is John helped me see that missions wasn't optional. John pointed me back to God's Word, and he helped me see that the Great Commission is, in fact, applicable for everyone, that I don't have some calling that you don't have if you're a Christ follower, and that the person, you know, that you have some calling based on God's Word to go and make disciples, but the person sitting next to you doesn't have that calling. As a young adult, John helped me understand what God was calling each and every one of us to do, because up to that point, I had thought about missions as something that was just for the other people you know, for the people who were a lot holier than me. But John helped me understand rooted truth in God's word that that was for each and every one of us. And it was game changer. It profoundly impacted me. In fact, changed the trajectory of my life. It changed the trajectory of what I wanted to do vocationally and what I desired to do with um, my gifts and my talents to live out that great commission. And I'm so grateful for that because he desired, and he desires still to this day, to say, you know what, my legacy is going to be in pointing people to truth. I think about my dad, and my dad was a perfect example of this as well. My dad's not perfect, but he, he certainly embodied this very well, he and my mom both. They embodied for my brother and I that it was better to give than to receive. That wasn't their words. That's Jesus' words. They desired to point me back to this truth, that it was truly better to give with your life than it was to receive. My parents have been and still to this day are the most generous people that I know. If my parents have it, it's yours for the taking. They, they truly seek to live their life as a conduit for whatever God has blessed them with, and they want to pass that on to anybody else. I was raised in a very, very middle to low class, you know, socioeconomic status home. In fact, I think that we were probably a lot poorer than I knew. We just didn't know it. But what I remember, I have distinct memories of moments that my dad would sit me down and he would sit my brother down. In fact, giving was very important to my family. And my dad would sit me down and he would show us his paycheck, you know, back when everything was paper. And he would show us a paycheck. And he would pull out a checkbook and he would pull out this big calculator and he would show me the amount on his paycheck and he would let me enter that in. To the calculator and he would let me hit times 0.1 and he would show me that amount and he would show me writing a check out to our church and would allow me sometimes to hand that in the offering basket. Friends, as a child, that profoundly 
impacted my views on generosity. In fact, he would take it one step further. He would actually show me on some months where our bills were greater than what was coming in. But you know what they would do month after month, week after week? They would faithfully give. And I would like to sit here and tell you that there was some financial way for all of this to be described. But I'll just tell you this. Month after month, I would see that the output was greater than the input. But somehow, somehow, it always worked out. And now my parents have never had debt, still have no debt, and still continue to be some of the most generous people that I have ever seen. I am so thankful that they made a determination that they wanted to leave a legacy to point me to truth and to say that the greatest thing that you can do with your resources is to share them with others. What's interesting about both of those stories in my life is that they were centered in truth. They weren't centered in popular teaching. They were centered in truth. It wasn't centered in popularity because, see, what's popular? What's popular this day and age is me, myself, and I. What's popular is my bank account is more important than what I can do with generosity. Popular teaching today is think about yourself first and whatever you have left over, then you can think about everyone else. But if you desire to live a life of purpose and a life of legacy, then this is something you're going to have to realize. In fact, you see it on the screen. If you desire for your words and actions to always be popular, it's likely you'll miss an opportunity to speak life-giving truth. If you desire for your words and your actions to always be popular, it's likely that you'll miss an opportunity to speak life-giving truth. In fact, it's likely that you'll miss an opportunity to leave a legacy beyond yourself. Because see, nothing, or I shouldn't say nothing, a lot. How about I'll rephrase that word? A lot about a Christ-centered legacy will be very unpopular in popular culture. Most of Jesus' teachings at the root are not that popular these day and age. How about this one? There's only one way to Jesus. There's only one way to be made right with God. Go out into the marketplace today and share that with someone. That's very unpopular teaching this day and age. Or how about this one? Give your money away. <laughs> Trust God with your first fruits. Trust God with your tithe. Um, that's unpopular teaching in our day and age. How about this one? Influence and notoriety should, are, are more important in my life than humility. That's what most people believe. It's very unpopular to go and say, you know what, influence and notoriety is not as important to me as humility, which leads us to a great point that just because something is unpopular doesn't mean it's untrue. Just because something is unpopular doesn't mean it's untrue. Look at what happened to Paul and his, and his companions. What were they doing? They were speaking the truth. They were saying Jesus is the only way. Jesus is the Messiah. Let's see where that got them. Verse 5, but other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. They formed a mob, and they started a riot in the city, and they rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. See, Paul and his companions speaking truth led to rioting mobs. And it led to, you know, what it says here, bad characters from the marketplace, discord in the community. That truth was very divisive because there was a group that would have rather heard popular things. But you and I will not leave a legacy for Christ if we seek to point people to things that are not true. Or if we point them to things that are just, you know, popular teaching day and, in this day and age. I, I'm reminded of this, that even as Christ followers, we struggle with this. This isn't something that I have figured out. 
this is something that if you're struggling with any of this, trust me, I am a fellow sojourner with you in this process because sometimes we will think deep down that the best way to set up the next generation is to amass hordes of wealth. That's not the best thing for the next generation. Sometimes when we look at the next generation, we will say, you know, the best way to develop that they're going to be successful is to make them really good at every sport, to make them really good at every activity, to make them really good at music, to make them really good at fill in the blank, many times at the expense of putting things in front of them that will truly make them more and more like Jesus. When we do that, then we're shortchanging them. And we're potentially making it even harder for them to leave a God-honoring legacy. And see, Paul was all about truth. He was about pointing people to the truth. And so should we. Now, when you move on, you see here in the next few verses, I'm going to give you just an overview of this. Paul and Silas, they leave Thessalonica in the middle of the night. A riot has formed. They're there to find them, this mob mentality. And so they leave in the middle of the night, and they go to Berea. And they land again, where? In the Jewish synagogue. I guess probably didn't see that one coming, right? They land in the Jewish synagogue again, and they begin sharing about the message of the Messiah. And many are moved by this truth. But do you remember that mob crowd from just a few days earlier? That mob crowd has now shown up in Berea. And they're still causing trouble. And so Paul realizes it's not safe for him there. And so he is escorted to Athens. And then in Athens, this is where we pick up in verse 16. So again, he's went to Thessalonica. He went to Berea. And now he's in Athens in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And then they took him and brought him to the meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears. And we would like to know what they mean. And all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. My question for you after hearing this part of the text is, how concerned are you when you see others not living for Jesus? Because your answer to that question is a pretty um, descriptive answer about where you're wanting your legacy to be. In fact, this is a great question to ask yourself to juxtapose it right up with what kind of legacy do I want to leave? How concerned am I? How concerned are you when you see others not living for Jesus? In verse 16, it says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was what? Greatly distressed to see the city full of idols. It didn't just bother him. He was greatly distressed by it. See, if I'm not concerned in the least bit when I see people choosing fear over faith, or if I'm not concerned the least bit when I see people turning from the way of God to all of the idols of this world, then I should do some serious introspection. If it doesn't distress you and bother you that people are choosing the way of this world opposed to the way of God, I, I would encourage all of us to grapple with some questions. And to do some serious soul-searching, maybe the first question that we should ask ourselves is, has Jesus really changed my life? Because if he hasn't, then it makes sense as to why I'm not really seeing things through his filter. But if he has, 
If I know him and I'm in a relationship with him, then why do I not want others to experience that? Do I really believe that there is life-giving truth here, or is this something that's just convenient for me? See, Paul had experienced that change. I think Paul was so assertive in his methodology because he remembers that not very long ago, he was breathing out murderous threats against the way. He was the one that was trying to stop the message, and God radically got a hold of his life. I think it's why Paul was, was, was so forthright and so truthful and so honest and loving and caring and, and, and had some attitude as well. I, I think that that's why Paul lived the way that he did, because he knew in his heart what God had done. And he knew the transformation. Who knows transformation in your life better than anybody? You do. You know just how wretched you were. <laughs> I'm not going to remind you of that. I know how wretched I am. You don't need to remind me of that. I know how far God has brought me. Paul knew how far God had brought him. And I believe it's what helped him to truly be concerned and distressed by the needs of other people. See, if I know Jesus and I'm not showing that concern to have a legacy of faith with other people, then perhaps today I would say, God, what do you want to recalibrate in my life? so that I can be more and more like you? Do I really love people? And do I really care about their eternal destiny? Do I care about the fullness of life that they can have right now? I want to share with you a quotation. In fact, this is a quotation that I have shared before because it's so good. And it's an old quotation. I actually have shared it in a sermon before at Rolling Hills. It's, I, it's not been within the last year, so maybe you won't remember. Um, but I know it's been within the past uh, handful of years. And it's a quotation from Penn Jillette. And Penn Jillette was part of the magician duo, Penn and Teller, and still is. I mean, you guys uh, may be familiar with Penn Jillette. But, but Penn Jillette was um, a, a pretty, staunch, pretty staunch atheist and had a, um, you know, very much kind of an anti-relationship you know, with Jesus point of view. God isn't real. And he was asking an interview, and the interview is about 10 years old at this matter, as a matter of fact. But he was asking an interview, what do you think about people who proselytize? And proselytize is a really fancy word for people who talk to you about Jesus or share with you about their faith. And they said, what do you think about that? You're an atheist. How does that make you feel? And this is a direct quote from Penn Jillette. He says, and I quote, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, or atheists who think people shouldn't proselytize and who just say, leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself, how much do you have to hate someone to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate someone to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean... If I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that that truck was bearing down on you, there is a certain point where I would tackle you. And this is more important than that. What profound words from someone who's not walking with Jesus saying, how much, if you actually believe this message, how much do you have to hate me to have life-giving truth but allow your social awkwardness or the fear of what I might say to prevent you from stepping up and sharing the truth? See, if I love the next generation and, and if I love my kids and if I want what's best for my kids and if I want what's best for other people's kids and if I want what's best for the generation who's coming up behind me, 
then I have to know what I should be pointing them to. And I have to love them enough to point them to the truth. And if I know that there's something that can make your life better and choose to not point it to you, then I'm not acting out of love. I'm acting out of something else. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's, um, you know, just a, a, a lack of truly understanding the message. It could be a number of things, but I'm not necessarily acting out of love. It didn't just remotely concern Paul as to what was going on in Athens. It says that it greatly distressed him. It greatly distressed him to see people chasing after idols. How about you? When you see people chasing after idols right now, which if you don't think they're doing it, I really don't know what rock you're sleeping under because it is so easy for us right now. It is so prevalent. In fact, Athens reminds me a lot of a modern-day kind of Western society. America sounds a lot to me like Athens was in this day and age, a city that was filled with idols and people chasing after them and looking for meaning in those specific places. When I think about idols, I, I think about the, the story in 1 Samuel. Some of you may be familiar with this story. In 1 Samuel chapter 5, we're taught that the Ark of the Covenant, which is the place where God dwelled, it was the physical place where God was indwelling, and it's stolen by the Philistines. Some of you may remember this story. And what did the Philistines do with the Ark of the Covenant? It was the place where God was residing. And they brought the Ark of the Covenant into the temple of Dagon. And Dagon was the primary Philistine idol, the primary Philistine god. They bring God, literally, into this false temple, the temple of Dagon. They all eat, drink, be merry, go to sleep. They wake up the next morning and Dagon has toppled over. In the presence of God, this big statue, this, this idol of Dagon has toppled over. And so they thought, again, I'm using some creative liberties here. You know, maybe there was a big wind last night. You know, we had just had too much to drink and didn't catch the fact that there was a big storm that came through. And so let's prop Dagon back up. They prop Dagon back up. They go on about their day. They go to sleep the next night. They come in the next morning to the temple of Dagon. Not only has Dagon fallen, but now he has broken into many pieces. What is the moral of the story? The moral of the story is that idols fall in the presence of God. Idols cannot stand in God's presence. See, we're in a season right now, we're in a COVID-19 season where a lot of idols have fallen. And what are a lot of us trying to do? A lot of us are trying to tie ropes on those and we're hoisting them back up as quick as we can. Perhaps God is saying, now I want you to let them fall. Because see, that was directing your attention away from me. Perhaps there's some idols in our life that we're just trying to hoist back up because we are so ready for life to get back to quote-unquote normal. And God is saying, no, in my presence, just let those things fall and let them be and trust in me. So you and I can try to leave a legacy by pointing people to idols. But all of those idols are things that are going to fall. All of those idols are things that are not going to withstand. All of those idols are things that are not going to, um, that, that, that will not last, that will not leave a legacy. What does Jesus say? He says, store for yourself up what treasures, not here on this earth, but up in heaven where moth and rust doesn't destroy, that there's nothing here on this earth that we can amass, no legacy that we can seek to leave that will stand because all of those things will fall in the presence of God. You see this here on the app, or you see this here on the screen, is that my aim in the midst of every situation then 
If I want to live this kind of life, if I want to leave this kind of legacy, then my aim in the midst of every situation should be to continually and constantly point others to Christ. This is where it gets really fun. This is where it gets really good, that my aim should be to point others continually and constantly to Christ. You see there in verse 18, there was a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers that began to debate with Paul. And some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? And others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this, why? Because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They knew what he was doing. They knew who he was constantly pointing others to. And then pick up in verse 22. So Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you who are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. And from one man he made all the nations. They should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far away from any one of us. See, Paul says, I see that you are very religious, but religion doesn't leave legacy. It's a relationship with God that does that. He looks and says in verse 23, I see that you've built a temple here to an unknown God. What's Paul saying? Paul is saying, no, God can be known to you. He says in verse 25, these temples and these gifts, all of these things that you're doing to try to make your idol, to try to make your false god turn his ear to you, are really exercises in futility. And I've seen this with my own eyes. Thanks to guys like John, who helped me understand that the Great Commission was for me. I've seen this lived out very literally in countries like China and Malaysia, where you see families that are so hungry for hope. And so they build these little altars, and they bake these little cakes, and they put oranges, and they, they put fruit, and they want not to try to get God to turn their ear to them. It breaks my heart. Why does it break my heart? It breaks my heart because the sovereign God of the universe said, no, I am close to you. I am sending the Messiah to you. Turn to him. It breaks my heart today to see people working so hard to Earn something that God said you can never earn, but I give it to you because I love you and because I care about you. Why did God do this? God did this, the answer precisely in verse 27. He said, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far away from any one of us. I want us to close today with this truth. God is never far away. God is never far away away. If you want to leave a legacy, then my hope and my prayer is that this truth would be written on your heart. God, I know that you're not far away. In fact, if you want to leave a legacy with others, that you will be able to speak this truth. God, I know that you're not far away. God's not far away from you. Your kids need to be reminded God's not far away. Your grandchildren need to be reminded God's not far away. Your coworkers need to be reminded God is not far away. He is not some unknown God that we have to build an altar to get him to turn his attention to us. No, God loves us so much that he sent his son, the Messiah. That's what Paul was teaching. That's why Paul was going into a synagogue and saying, this is who Jesus is. That's where he desired his life to count. 
And that's where I hope and pray we desire our life to count. I don't know where you are today, but I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment. And we're going to conclude our service today um, with a time of response, a time of worship. Because maybe you're here um, and these truths are not just, they're just simply not being lived out in your life. And maybe today we'll just have a moment where we'll say, let's get real. Let's just get real and say, God, what is it that you desire to do? You may not be doing any of this because your heart's not in the right place. And maybe today would be the day when you say, you know what, God, I want to trust you. I want to trust you for the first time with salvation. I want to trust you that you have a plan for my life. Or maybe you're here and you've been trying to leave a legacy um, based on the idols of this world. And today, I want you to hear these words. God is not far away. He is here. He can be found. And when you seek after him and know him and make him known and point others to the truth, that that's ultimately where we leave a legacy. So wherever you may be today, I pray that in this time of response that you would reflect, that you would pray. Maybe if you want to kneel at your chair and just say, God, help these truths to be more clear and more evident to me now than they've ever been so that I can go out of these doors today and leave a legacy of faith to this generation that's coming behind us. Lord, thank you for meeting us in this place. I'm so thankful for who you are. I'm thankful for your presence, and I pray that you would guide us and direct us today and help us to respond to you as a result of your word. It's the name of Christ that we pray and ask these things. Amen.